This evening for our scripture reading, we would turn your attention to Psalm 127 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 713. Perhaps a word of explanation behind the selection of the text. We interrupt uh, for a week our series through the prophet of Micah. Uh, taking the opportunity uh, not to intrude upon our fellow brother uh, and pastor, Reverend Azwart. Uh, he had his text chosen, uh, and I thought, well, certainly it would be appropriate uh, to turn our attention also to Psalm 127, uh, not so much in connection with a baptism sermon. Uh, he certainly gave us the faithful exposition of the Word of God this morning, but I'll explain a little bit more in my introduction uh, why I felt this week uh, led to this passage and to this text. So we read this evening from the Word of God, as you can find that given by way of inspiration in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate." And our text this evening will focus simply on verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ a further word of explanation behind the selection of this text for this evening. Uh, it flows out of a pastoral concern, a pastoral concern that is not brought about by any one specific situation within the congregation, a pastoral concern that is brought about by a recognition of what is going on in our culture with the attack and the focused destruction of the nuclear family. The nuclear family, that of one husband, one wife, father and mother committed to each other as they are committed unto the Lord, committed to the children uh, whom perhaps in God's providence they are blessed with, committed to raising those children in the fear of the Lord. That nuclear family, as we understand it, being revealed in Scripture is under increasing attack within our culture. And I would submit to you this evening, congregation, that the culture has made great inroads into the church, so that in many areas you find the church following the cues of the culture uh, rather than living counterculture. Uh, now, we bring this to our attention not just simply to grab your ear by way of an anecdotal introduction, uh, but we bring this to your attention because we are firmly committed to the understanding which we believe to be foundational in Scripture that as goes the family, so goes the congregation. And as goes the family, so goes the community. As goes the family, so goes the nation. Now, thanks be to God on one hand that we have a sure promise that God will be our God and not just to us but also to our children and to our children's children. But nevertheless, we do well, if we are going to be biblically wise, to recognize the attack that is coming upon the family. 
Uh, But then the question is, well, what are we to do in response to these attacks? One thing I don't believe that we should do is just simply bemoan uh, the pretended existence of a better day in the history gone by. You know, we could sit around this evening and just talk about a better day. You could go back a decade or perhaps two decades, and you could talk about uh, a time maybe in Pella, Iowa, uh, when families were committed one to another, when husbands were faithful to wives and wives were faithful to husbands, and parents uh, had a sense of the responsibility of the instruction of their covenantal children, uh, when Sundays were characterized, yes, maybe even both morning and evening, by the people in great multitudes assembling themselves together in the places of worship. And all of us, I suppose, if we have just a bit of sentimental uh, aspect to us, uh, we'll think with fondness upon the days in which the churches of Pella were overflowing with attentive listeners. But what does that really help us as we go forward? As we go forward as families, as we go forward as a congregation, to just bemoan the, the sad disconnect from our current experience, from that which perhaps we remember of our youth, or perhaps that which we are retold from others in their youth, doesn't really help us. You might even say, tying in with what our psalm says here in Psalm 127, it it would even be vain for us to simply reminisce about a better day. And indeed, if we reminisce too long about a better day, uh, it will interrupt our sleep, and it will cause great anxiety. So I don't believe, pastorally speaking, that that's the way forward. But neither do I believe the way forward is just simply a complete passive inactivity, just to kind of shrug our spiritual shoulders and say, oh, well, it is what it is, and just hunker down and pray that the Lord comes immediately, tomorrow, perhaps even this evening. Now, certainly we all have as Christians a desire for our risen and triumphant and glorious Christ to return. But what should we do in the in-between time? I believe that this psalm is instructive for us as we reflect upon these realities. And I believe that as a congregation, one of the most important things that we need to recognize is what I have in the theme there, the need for the Lord's blessing in the building of a house. Uh, most commentators are of the opinion uh, that the heading there is inspired. The heading, I mean, a song of a sense. Notice the author, not of David, but of Solomon. And when you think of Solomon, boys and girls, you also, uh, you know that Solomon, he was a builder. He built a beautiful palace for the house of God. And yet, it's Solomon who, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, apart from the Lord's blessing, it's all vain. And so we consider our theme for our encouragement, the need for the Lord's blessing in the building of a house. Now, as you think about this theme, keep in mind the house could be your own life, your own personal life. The, the house could be uh, a future marriage. So perhaps to the, to the young people, you can think about the building of your house, of, of a future relationship, or maybe as Young parents, you can think about your house of the the beginning of the raising of children. Um, Maybe you've lived many years. Maybe your earthly pilgrimage is advanced at this stage. You can still think of the house that you are building, of the legacy that you will leave. 
And we can broaden that out and we can think of ourselves as a congregation, as a house. And of the house that we are building day by day, week by week, month by month as a congregation. Well, the main point of verses 1 and 2 is that unless the Lord blesses our labors, it will all be completely futile. So we'll notice the need for the Lord's blessing in the building of a house, noticing, first of all, the contrast to the Lord's blessing, and then secondly, the description of the Lord's blessing, and then thirdly, the result of the Lord's blessing. So the contrast, the description, and then the result of the Lord's blessing. So first of all, then, the contrast to the Lord's blessing. We'll summarize that contrast, and then we'll point out the reason in which the Lord gives that contrast. Uh, The contrast includes all of man's labors. Uh, If you keep your Bible open, and if you look uh, carefully at the words of our text, you'll notice that there is a certain comprehensiveness. All of humanity's toil and labor, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. To labor, what, what is it to labor? Well, you know, maybe uh, the new mothers in the congregation, uh, they, they know what labor is. It's not that type of a labor. It's not referring here to childbirth. And, and it's not just simply referring to work or what I prefer to call our vocation. We remember well if we record the biblical narrative uh, that work is not a result of the fall. Adam and Eve were to work even as the Lord Jesus Christ works and even as our Father works, but, but rather the word labor here has a specific aspect uh, of toil or of the grievous and unfulfilling aspect of work, of the unfulfilling aspect of work. And, and just to commentate Uh, upon culture, you find this mindset among many, many people who are just passing the time, punching in the time clocks and punching out the time clocks. And sometimes you'll ask them about their vocation or about their work or about their career, and you can just sense the lack of real satisfaction with what they are spending the majority of their life doing. It just comes across as a complete exercise in futility for them. And we might say that it is. Apart from the Lord, apart from a relationship with the Lord, and apart from a recognition of the purposes of the Lord God. And this is why if you look at unbiblical worldviews, whether it be existentialism or whether it be materialism or postmodernism, there's this aspect of a sense of futility in all of them because they don't understand life in relationship to the Lord. And if you don't understand life in relationship to the Lord, then indeed everything is vanity, just empty, just meaningless. And that's the contrast here. And you look at the activities of of human beings under the face of the sun, as Solomon writes in another portion of Scripture. And if you just step back for a moment... And if you look at everything that everyone is engaged in, uh, the building of homes, the building of businesses, the building of portfolios, the building perhaps even uh, of their own physique, but if you step back, and, and not necessarily to be the pessimistic person who always points out the end of all things, but is any of it going to last? Imagine you build the most beautiful home. Is it going to last? Well, perhaps 80 to 100 years, and then they'll tear it down. Perhaps you build the most successful business. Is it going to last? 
Most likely not. Perhaps you build, and maybe here we speak to the younger people, perhaps you build the physique that you always wanted. You're strong, you're fast, you're quick. The day will come that you'll sit in the bleachers along with the rest, and you'll talk about your glory days that have quickly passed you by. Apart from the Lord, everything is vain and futile. Now, we have two options in connection with that truth. We can either deny it and continue our exercise in futility, or we can recognize it and humble ourselves and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and find purpose in life. Notice the repetition even as we read Psalm 127, the word vain over and over. I like the chorus or the refrain, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. And so there is both the description of humanity's provisional activity, right? Uh, the, the eating of bread, uh, the sitting up late, but also of, of man's defensive activities. So man, humanity, understanding the, the threats that are out there uh, in the course of life, builds a wall around his life, builds a tower, places a watchman, says to the watchman, upon pain, uh, perhaps even of the death penalty, now you stay awake and watch and guard. All of these certainly can be proper activities when they are done in the recognition of the providence of the Lord, but done apart from that. Solomon says, it's all completely vain. What does that word actually mean, vain? It just means empty. It means futile. I'll give you an illustration. It's like trying to carry water in a hole-filled bucket. No matter how fast you put water into a bucket with holes in the bottom, the water just leaks out. Now imagine, boys and girls, if I gave you a job. I said, I want you to fill, you know, one of these big cattle tanks. How many hundreds of gallons? I don't know. You can think of how many hundreds of gallons you want it to hold. And I gave you a bucket that had all kinds of holes in the bottom. And I said, there's a faucet or there's a spigot across the yard. And you filled that bucket up. And the minute you picked it up, all the water ran out of the holes. I would imagine you're bright. After about a time or two, you would say, this is not going to work. So is life apart from the Lord. You can spend all of your days, exercise all of your energy. You might say, well, if only we try to fill the bucket faster and faster and faster. And don't you see that's what society's doing? Well, if only we go faster and faster and faster and build bigger and better, then perhaps we'll find some sense of satisfaction. And Solomon tried that. You can read through Ecclesiastes. He lived faster. He built bigger. And his... Evaluation of it all? Vanity of vanities. Because it's all fleeing away. The minute you grasp something, it's gone. And the Lord would have us to know this. The reason for the contrast is because humanity has no inherent power. Now, we don't like to hear that. But humanity has no inherent power. We have no power in and of ourselves. We can't even cause our own existence for a millisecond. 
And Psalm 90 confronts us with the reality of this, the vanity of life apart from the Lord. Moses says the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only, what is their boast? Maybe some of us have memorized this verse. The boast of 70 years, the boast of 80 years, only labor and sorrow. Well, why? Because of the reality of eternity. For, the psalmist continues, it is soon cut off and we fly away. Now, I want to be clear that Solomon is not writing this just so we would hold up our hands in desperation and say, what is the point of living? No, he's writing this underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we might humble ourselves. And one of the first, most basic steps in the building of a successful house, speaking here of your own life or of a marriage or of a family, or of a congregation, one of the first most important steps is to humbly recognize that you cannot do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. And when there's that type of humble recognition, then there comes the cry, unless the Lord. And you'll notice if you follow along that we're transitioning into our second point, and we've said in previous times that some of the most powerful words in Scripture are but God. Now here it's worded a little bit differently, but really it's the same in essence. And so our second point, the description of the Lord's blessing, just notice that unless the Lord, and thanks be to God that that phrase is in the Bible. And thanks be to God that that phrase is here in Psalm 127. And thanks be to God that that's where the psalmist begins. Now, for homiletical purposes, we put the contrast as our first point so that we might unfold uh, the futility of human activity apart from the Lord's blessing. But the emphasis is not not upon the vanity of human activity, but rather the emphasis is upon the sure and the steadfast result of God's activity, of the Lord's activity. Unless the Lord... And so in our own personal lives, and you can even think of this in the practical situation, all of us have another week that lies before us. And we have our plans, and we have made our dates and our engagements, and we'll do this activity, and we'll do that activity, and James talks about this also. It's vain for us to say, well, I will go and do this, and I will go and do that this week and next month and next year. We rather ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and we will do that. Because unless the Lord prospers all of the activity of our hands and of our feet. It's all vanity. Unless the Lord. Now notice also the grammar of the word Lord there, the title, the name Lord, is all encapsulated, signifying once again for us, uh, this is Yahweh. This is the unique, special, covenantal name that God gave to Himself when He revealed Himself in the establishment of the covenant promise Uh, And we then can unfold this description of the Lord's blessing. If we were to ask ourselves, well, what exactly is the Lord's blessing? Well, the Lord's blessing is His covenant faithfulness to His people and His covenantal gifts for His people. The, The covenantal faithfulness of the Lord God 
for his people. Uh, We heard about it this morning, but we elaborated uh, on a bit more this evening, this covenantal relationship, uh, a a covenant, uh, this this bond, uh, this promissory relationship where God says, And if we need a reason to worship this evening, we can just reflect upon the reality of what God has said in the establishment of His covenant. God Himself, infinitely holy and infinitely majestic, three in one, even as uh, the mouths of babes proclaim to us this evening, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that this triune, infinitely majestic God would say, I will be your God. Ponder that anew. I will be your God. Now perhaps we can come up with an analogy, although it will fall far, far short. But imagine as a young person, you know there's a certain person at school and and they're popular, they're charismatic, Uh, they're, they're always in the midst of all of the social activities. And they say to you, I want to be your friend. You might go, well, well, that's kind of a a big deal. He or she wants to be friends with me. I told you that this analogy is going to fall infinitely short. Because it's not just a human person who says this. And it's not even angelic beings that say this. I mean, imagine if the host of angels, the innumerable company of these mighty ones, imagine if all of the angels said to you, we will be on your side. We will guard you. We will protect you. Even that is infinitely short of what the covenantal promise is when the Lord God says, I will be your God. And included in that is His faithfulness. Because He doesn't say, I will be your God for a time for a week or for a month or for a year. But His covenant is sure and it is promised because it's sure and it's promised based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not contingent upon what we do. It's a sovereign covenantal promise that flows out of eternity itself and the decree of election Uh, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit determined to have a people who would be incorporated into that fellowship of life. And so flowing out of that, there is the realization of redemption and then the application of redemption. But you see, congregation, in the contrast to the futility of the unbelieving world, the Christian church in humility has great optimism. Why? Because the Lord is our God. And He has promised that He will always be our Lord and always be our God. And His promise is absolutely sure. You know, if you lived any length of days, you know that in this life, human beings can fail you. Human beings can make promises to you that perhaps because of their own sin or perhaps because of unforeseen circumstances or perhaps because of their own Uh, impotency. They don't simply have the power to accomplish that which they have promised. Human beings can oftentimes fail us, and that brings uh, a certain amount of sadness within our lives, perhaps grief, perhaps pain. The Lord God will never fail. He will never fail because He's the Lord God. 
infinite in power, infinite in might, infinite in majesty, infinite in knowledge, infinite in wisdom. Uh, And He promises, and and as we were told this morning, uh, as as we heard, rather, even in the reading of the form of baptism, uh, and it's it's a good updated language, but I'm a creature of habit, I'm a dinosaur in many ways, but there's this promise that the Lord God will avert all evil. He he will avert all evil. Now, oftentimes we don't think of that this way, but, but the week that lies ahead of you and the week that lies ahead of me, there is a host of demons who would seek to destroy us, and our own indwelling sin would cooperate with them. There is much that is against us, but thanks be to God that the Lord God has promised that He will avert all evil and actually turn it for our good. And so, yes, it is vain for man to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, to be filled with anxieties and fears and doubts and perplexities, unless the Lord builds the house. Not only the covenantal faithfulness for His people, but also then covenantal gifts for His people. Uh, This, of course, flows out of the covenant faithfulness. When the Lord God says, I will be your God, He includes in that promise that He will do something for us. We would just simply summarize, and all this flows out really uh, of that word, the Lord, as He establishes His covenant And as he continues that covenant, because of course you notice verse 3 through 5 speaks about the generational progression of the covenant of grace. Uh, So children are born to believers, uh, and down to a multitude of generations the kingdom of God advances and increases uh, in number because God in His faithfulness gives gifts to His people. Uh, And these gifts we would just simply summarize as being two grace and mercy. And grace and mercy, of course, result in in peace. And so often we hear this combination uh, either with the salutation or the benediction, grace and mercy. And our words, our ears really uh, ought to just seize upon these words. Grace to me from the Lord through Jesus Christ? Because, of course, all of the Spiritual, redemptive gifts of God come only through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to receive grace. There's no other way to receive mercy other than the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the covenant or the surety of the covenant, because it's all upon Him and His work that this whole covenantal framework rests But the great gift is God's grace or His undeserved blessings. And and it's by that that forgiving grace, by that transformative grace, by that empowering grace, then it's filled with that grace, receiving that grace. It's then that a Christian life can be built in the way of repentance and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's by this grace then that a Christian marriage can be established. And we're thankful for many solid, strong marriages in the congregation, but I dare say if you go talk to the couple who have been married the longest and ask them, did you need any grace for your 60-plus years together? Oh, I dare say they would nod and they would say, yes, grace is certainly necessary for a successful marriage. And the same then uh, when the sound of little children's pattering feet fill the home. And I suppose that any faithful parent, any Christian parent, 
would acknowledge the necessity of grace as you seek to lead and guide and train and instruct these little ones, and not just the children, but in the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. So on the one hand, there is this desperate need for grace, but there's also the provision of grace, because who is Jesus Christ but Him who is full of grace? And so as we build our, our homes, as we build our Christian lives and our Christian relationships and our Christian homes, and then by further extension, as we continue to build a Christian congregation, I just want us to pause tonight in all seriousness and ask ourselves a reflective question. Have we fully understood our need for grace? In your own life, in your marriage, in your home, but also as as a congregation. If we understand our need for grace, then there will be the fervent prayer for grace and the seeking of that grace as it's found in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, not only grace, but also mercy. A mercy uh, as described uh, as the compassion of the Lord for those who deserve condemnation. You know, there's not a day that you and I live in which we are not in desperate need of mercy. Especially in the recognition of our own shortcomings, which sometimes we are so content to call them shortcomings, but they're really sins. You can't live a life without recognizing, a Christian life, without recognizing your need for mercy. And also in our marriages. There is a desperate need for mercy, and in our families, mercy. And people of God, as a congregation, we need the mercy of the Lord. For we have not lived a perfect life. We have not done everything right for the honor and the glory of God. Not unto us belongs glory, but unto us belongs shame of face. For we have sinned against our covenantal Lord. And we just don't wallow in self-pity, but we do humble ourselves. And in essence, we say, how the mighty have fallen. Lord, give us your grace and your mercy, lest we perish. This is the description of the Lord's blessing, and it brings about a result. If we cry out to the Lord in genuine humility, looking at the mediator of the covenant of grace, then there is this result, first of all, of a peaceful, but also of a particular result. The result here is seen in the last phrase of verse 2 so he gives his beloved sleep. A sleep here, of, of course, literal sleep, because it's set in the contrast of this individual who's living a life of vanity, a life of self-reliance, a life of self-dependence. Well, he's up early and he's sitting up late, and that in and of itself is not to be condemned, but he's doing it all in vanity, uh, and he's eating the bread of sorrows. The life of the person living outside of this relationship of, of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a life of sorrows. And our heart breaks 
when we hear the reports, just for example, of suicides. Now, I know there's a host of issues that come into play with evaluating the rise of suicides within our country, within our culture. But when you hear of suicides, don't you just think in part of sorrow, of indescribable sorrow, of maybe even a person being unable to express the sorrow that their very soul feels to the point where they believe that the best answer is to take their own life. And if anyone ever hears these words and is contemplating such an action, I lovingly assure you that that is not the best answer, nor is that the only answer. The answer for the sorrowful heart, the sorrowful mind, is not suicide. It's humbly calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ and crying out for grace and for mercy. And there are many compassionate souls within our communities, within our churches, who will help such individuals find their way, so to speak, to the arms of the Savior who calls out especially to the weary and to the worn, saying, come unto me and I will give you rest. I will give you sleep. Spiritually speaking, uh, sleep, of course, now I know it's interrupted by many factors. Might be the neighbor's noise. Might be elderly years. But sleep is a most peaceful thing. New mothers know that. It's a most blessed thing when the infant sleeps, and it's a most blessed thing when the mother can sleep. And that's the picture here. He gives his beloved sleep, rest. Uh, this is the result. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the famous uh, minister of the 1800s, wrote, Through faith the Lord makes his chosen ones to rest in him, happy and free from care. Now, that doesn't mean that we live a careless life. But you know, the Apostle Paul has this wonderful instruction for us to cast our anxieties upon the Lord, and that's very difficult for us to do. Because we like to, we like to keep our hands on our anxieties. Now, maybe we deny that. Maybe we say, no, I, I, I don't like to hold on to my anxieties. Well, why are we holding on to them then? At some level, it's because we are tempted to believe that we can handle our anxieties better than the Lord can. The Lord invites us, cast, and that word, and I've used this analogy in my previous congregation, but that, that word is it's almost a violent word, that word cast. It, it means to throw. Or even we might say, you know, if, if we're boys on a playground, chuck that thing. Uh, in my earlier years, I spent some time in the construction world and spent some time tearing out concrete, tearing out and removing concrete. Uh, and when you tear out concrete and you, and you pick a piece of concrete up, it's extremely heavy. That's why you always try to use equipment, but sometimes the only equipment is, is your hands. And when you go to throw a trunk of concrete into a skid loader or into a, a trailer, if you hold on to it too long, you're going to get hurt. 
You need, to, you need to chuck it. And you need to let go of it. And perhaps to you tonight, the Lord is saying, cast your burdens upon me. Cast all of those cares upon the Lord. He cares for you. Put them all on the Lord's plate. It, it, it's said that Martin Luther, and of course, uh, he had his battles with the devils and uh, the host of powers of darkness. It's said that at evening time, he would be overwhelmed with the concerns of all of the churches and with the Reformation. Uh, and in his prayer, he would, to summarize, say, Lord, it's your church. I'm going to let you take care of it tonight. I'm going to go to sleep. When I awake in the morning, I'll pick up my labors again. But it's your church. I've done what I've been able to do today. I put it all into your care. And maybe your own personal life, maybe your marriage life, maybe your life of raising your children, maybe the life of our congregation, maybe we need to say, Lord, it's yours. I'll do what I can do. But you take care of it. You're the one who's all knowledgeable, all wise, all powerful, all sufficient. And that gives his beloved sleep. In closing, I just want you to note that this is a particular result. He does not give everyone sleep. He gives his beloved sleep. Now, who are the beloved? Of course, you could say, well, they are the elect. And that's certainly true. But being elect, they are also the ones who exercise faith and repentance. And so, again, just a clear call this evening. If you are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you to do so. It's only there that you'll find true, lasting rest. The beloved are those who are elect. The beloved are those who believe and repent. The beloved are those who are justified. The beloved are those who are being sanctified. The beloved are those who have peace with God. And I just want you to pause and think. In the evening hour, as you face the end of the day and as you contemplate sleep, what could be more comforting than to know that you are the beloved of the Lord? Maybe that's what gives the psalmist sleep. You know, you think, you think about the life of Solomon. Did the fact that he had a massive palace give him sleep at night? I don't think it did. Did the fact that he had a thousand women around him give him sleep? He wrote, it's better to dwell on the housetops than with a contentious woman. So I don't think that's what gave him sleep. All his money, he says, is all vanity. But to know that you are the beloved of the Lord... No matter what circumstances are, at the end of the day, isn't that what gives our soul rest? It is. And so as you by faith contemplate that there is a fullness of grace and mercy unto you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, may that give you in your life and in your relationships, and may that give us as a congregation spiritual rest, that we know that we are the beloved of God. Amen.